he would use, use his phrase. Because it means this is for everyone, right? Everyone has ears. But not everyone wants to hear what he has to say. And oftentimes when we come to those areas in Scripture where Jesus has sayings that are difficult, they're, they're difficult because they leave us with a lot of questions like, well, what about, right? Well, what about this? What about that? And Jesus leaves us with his answer. Let him who has ears hear. Most of the time, it's not that complicated, the message that he brings. There are seven letters to seven churches in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 through 3. Sometime you should sit down and look at them. They're probably the only epistles in Scripture written by Christ to the church. Everything else, the Gospels that we read about, that's pre-church, right? The church doesn't exist till, till the book of Acts, until the resurrection and the, the giving of the Holy Spirit and, and the empowering of the church. So you have seven epistles, if you will, seven letters by Jesus to seven churches. And this is what he had to say to everyone. I'm, gonna, I'm going to kind of bring them all to one message. Basically what he said is, you guys don't really know who you are. If you think you're rich, you're really poor. If you think you're bad, you might really be good. In fact, your ability to estimate where you are, where your self is, is poor. Every church, the seven letters of the seven churches, was surprised by the message Jesus gave them. Every one of them. And to every one of the churches, he said this. Repent. Keep your eyes on the prize. Finish the race. And then he'd get to the end and say, let him who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Oftentimes, the message that God would relate to us through His Word, oftentimes it falls on deaf ears. And it fell on deaf ears at the time of Christ, right? And I want you just to put yourself into the story. That's what we want to do when we study the Word of God. We want to put ourselves into the story. What's going on? Jesus is talking to all the... the there's a bunch of people following Him. And He's headed to Jerusalem. And he does not paint a rosy picture of Jerusalem, right? He says, I'm going to go there, I'm going to be accused, I'm going to die, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to, I'm going to be buried, I'm going to rise on the third day. That, that's a rough week for anybody, right? This is where he's headed, this is where he's going. And he, he wants all of those who are following him to understand where they're going. Do you know where you're going when Jesus says, come and follow me? Because where he's going is Golgotha, the place of the skull. He's going to die. And the challenging thing for his disciples is we are called to the same place. We are called to our Golgotha. We are called to, to die. Right? When, when I receive Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, I'm being identified to his death. And his resurrection. So I die to me. And I live to him. Paul would say in Galatians chapter 2. That I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. But Christ who lives in me. And the things that he does. He says I do these by the power of the Holy Spirit that was given to me. I, I died that day that I trusted in Jesus. I love the stories of the old missionaries who were headed to, to incredible, challenging places. I think it was uh, C.J. Studd who was going down to China and they were on the boat and the, and the, and the guy, the, the captain of the boat, the whole entire journey is trying to talk him out of it. Look, you don't really want to go there. You don't really want to go. If you go, you're going to die. Over and over, day by day by day, he would tell him, you, you, you really should stop. You really should go back. So one day he looked at the captain and he said, Don't you understand? I died already. 
Now, I live for Christ. That's not about me. There are these challenging teachings in the Word, and this is one of them that we come to this morning. This is one of them because it's a call to discipleship. And here's how we want to comfort ourselves. We want to comfort ourselves by saying, well, there's two different levels. There's a saved and then there's a disciple. Sorry, that's not in the Bible. It's It's one of the challenges, right? There's not two different categories. That's something we create. The Bible teaches us there's, there's one, a follower, or you're not a follower. And a follower is a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, obeying his teachings. A.W. Tozer, I don't know if you guys know who he is. A.W. Tozer wrote some of the greatest books I've ever read in my life. His uh, book, The Pursuit of God, is incredible. You find an A.W. Tozer book and you want to be uh, encouraged and challenged, pick it up and read it. He's, he's an incredible, gifted author in the 20th century. He's, he's in heaven now. He was asked this question. Uh, what steps make you a disciple? What, what steps do you got to follow? And so he said, you know, I'm not a big fan of steps. I'm not a big fan of steps, but basically what, what I do, A.W. Tozer said, what I do is, is I just plunge in and let God take care of the steps. I just want all of him. But then he, he said, well, listen, if you, if you want something, let me give you a couple of, of things you may consider. He said, number one, determine to take the whole thing, your relationship with Christ, determine to take the whole thing in dead earnest. All in. Or not in at all. Determined to take the whole thing in dead earnest. Second, he said, throw yourself out recklessly upon God. Throw yourself out recklessly upon Him. Third, he said, take a solemn vow to never take the honor or the glory for anything, but only point to God to receive honor and glory. Next, he said, determine not to defend yourself against any detractors or persecutors so don't defend yourself don't don't try to take care of your reputation put your reputation in god's hand let him take care of it and then he said learn to mortify the flesh its desires and its lusts real death to self die to yourself and then he said this not many will follow this rugged way. But in my opinion, these are real disciples. Here's what the Bible says when we ask the question, what's a disciple? Well, the Bible says it's someone who believes in Jesus Christ, right? Matthew 28, 19. We've heard this before. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's our, that's our, our, our marching orders. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you even until the end of the age. Jesus declaring to us, one who believes in Christ. In Acts 6-7, he said, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith, trusting, believing in Christ. Acts 14, 21 says, And when they had preached the gospel to that city, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, and to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So the first thing we see, someone who believes, someone who trusts in Jesus Christ. This is a, a, a disciple. The next one we see was, was implied in Matthew twenty eight nineteen. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Was the first thing after that? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So a, a disciple, someone not only who has placed their trust in Christ, but someone who has followed obediently into baptism. Acts 8 says that when Philip opened his mouth, began at the scripture and told him the good news about Jesus... 
And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, hey, there's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. They both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Nothing. Nothing prevents you from being baptized. Why? Because you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. You believe. We follow in the act of baptism. The next thing that the Bible teaches us about a disciple is a disciple is someone who acts like Jesus. Who acts like Jesus. Luke 6.40 A disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Disciple is somebody who acts like Jesus. A disciple is one who abides in his word. John 8, 31 and 32 says this, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Disciples are those who abide in his word. Disciples are those who love the brethren, who love the body of Christ. John 13, 34 Jesus said, a new command I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know you are my disciples, by the way you love one another. One who bears much fruit, the Bible says, this is a disciple John 15, 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And finally, we'll see in our text this morning, Luke 14, 33, One who forsakes everything to follow Christ. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, Cannot be my disciple. So when we look at this concept of discipleship, this, this attitude of the believer, someone who trusts in Christ, someone who's following Him, someone who acts like Jesus, someone who listens to His teachings, some of them, someone who's governed by the principle of loving one another, all of these things are the picture of a disciple for Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at discipleship this morning. We're going to talk about three or four things. We'll see how it goes. About what discipleship really means in the text that's before us this morning. What's it really mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And the very first one, the very first thing that I think Jesus emphasizes is total surrender. Oftentimes people say total commitment. Uh, commitment implies that somehow there's something within my will that I'm able to add to it. And I'm not sure I can. I am sure that I'm able to surrender. Right? Does everybody have enough strength to give up? Okay, so that's kind of the idea, right? When we come to Christ for salvation, what am I saying to Him? I'm saying I surrender. It's, I've been trying to do this thing... Life, you know, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, whatever. I've been trying to do this, and I have been falling short. Now, I, I am surrendering. I want you to do it in me. That's, that's the, the, the concept. And one of the first things that we see about total surrender is the change of our priorities. My priorities change. If I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, my priorities change. Change. It says, now a great many crowds accompanied him. And he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. <laughs> well, that's something to swallow, no? In Matthew 5.44, Jesus said, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So I'm supposed to love my enemies and hate my family. Is that what he's telling us? Is that what's being prescribed for us? What he's talking about is our allegiances. 
There is a time in my life where my allegiance maybe is to me. Or my allegiance is to my wife or my family. And those are all good things. Nobody's saying that's a bad thing. To have an allegiance towards your family. But when you come to Jesus Christ and you surrender, you're proclaiming that your allegiance is where? To Him. Now, hidden in this concept, not obvious on the surface, is this. Unless your allegiance is completely and wholly to God, you cannot be the husband you need to be. You cannot be the father you need to be. You cannot have the attitude toward your family that you need to have because you're not empowered to do so. So you will fail at all those things that you say, I need to keep my allegiance here, if you don't first bring your allegiance to Christ. A disciple, our our allegiance is going to change. Our allegiance. In Luke chapter 13, remember just a couple of weeks ago we read this. Jesus said, then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and and you taught in our streets. But he will say to you, I tell you, I don't know where you came from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. He says, the day will come when you will say, Jesus looking at the crowds, I ate with you, Jesus. We we had lunch together. Or I stood in the street (coughs) while you were teaching. And Jesus is going to say, but I'm going to say, I didn't know you. I didn't know you. That's not. You were not a follower. You were not a disciple, though you find yourself in those places. So when he begins, right here, when he begins, his focus is on this idea. In light of this concept, it's important that you know whether or not you're a disciple. It's important that you know. The Bible says, if you would judge yourself, you would not be judged. You're, you know, right? Nobody, you know better than anybody else is going to know. How about that? Yeah. Right? If You know your heart better than anyone else is going to know it. So the question is here in this beginning is, when you come to Christ, did your allegiance change? Whenever the Bible uses this phrase, especially Hebrew, to hate, it is an idiom. You guys know what an idiom is? An idiom is a figure of speech. It, it's a, a way of saying something. So it's trying to really <clears throat> bring impact. And the impact is, ultimately, that you don't love this as much as you love that. That you don't love this, that it has dropped in priority or preeminence. Here's how we know that. Genesis 29, verse 30, it says, So Jacob went into Rachel... And he loved Rachel more than Leah. So Jacob, by his actions, Scripture says, Jacob loved Rachel, we know that, more than Leah. It doesn't say he didn't love her. It doesn't say he didn't love Leah. It doesn't say he didn't take care of her or watch over her. It doesn't say that it's not through her children Messiah would come. What it says is, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Now we continue in this section of scripture, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was, what's the word? Hated. Hated. Hebrew idiom. To drive home the idea that the allegiance, the allegiance of Jacob was not to Leah, his allegiance was to Rachel. Right? He he didn't hate her. Hating means you want to see their destruction. I know he didn't hate her, he cared for her. This is an idiom, figure of speech. The figure of speech is, what do you love more? So Jesus, when he's teaching, when he lays out this concept, this this idiom before us, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, Jesus has already had someone come to him and say, Lord, I'll follow you as soon as my father dies. What does that imply? It doesn't imply, I'll tell you what it doesn't imply. It doesn't imply that dad is on his deathbed and it's going to be any minute. And then when dad dies, he'll come. What it means is, first my priority is to my father, but after that, my priority will be to you. And Jesus says, don't. No one putting his hands to the plow and looking backward is fit for the kingdom of God. God says, I want... First priority. I want to be in that 
in the forefront. In Matthew 6, 24, listen to what Jesus said. No one can serve two masters. Either he hates the one and loves the other, or loves the one and hates the other. What's that mean? It means you cannot spread out love equally in every direction. So the Lord is saying, look, if you're going to, to follow me, say, I'm your master, then, then that means you love me. Because everything else will be less than that. If that's not the case, then everything else will be greater. Are you tracking with me? If you say, well, Lord, I, I want to come to you and I want to trust in you, but man, I'm really young right now and I, I want to really enjoy my life. Then let me just settle it for you have not come to the Lord. You are not a disciple of Jesus Christ. You are a disciple of self. And when self dies and you choose Christ first, then you become a disciple of Him. That's what total surrender looks like. That's what an allegiance to Christ looks like. We can only serve one. We can only... Put priority on one. Only one can have the preeminence. In Romans 9, 11, and 13, building on this idea, Paul writes, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have Hated. The concept is a concept of allegiance and preeminence. God is saying, not through both brothers am I going to bring the nation of Israel, but through one. Which one? Jacob. Was it because Esau's bad? That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says God chose Jacob because God chose Jacob. Because God gets to choose. Are you free? Are you free? Do you get to pick whatever you want to do today? Do you get to pick what you want to eat? What socks you want to wear? What fancy shoes you put on? What color tie? You got to pick all that, right? If you being free get to choose, why doesn't God? Isn't he the maker of all free beings? Maybe even the most free of all free beings? God is saying... Jacob I have loved doesn't mean he didn't care for Esau. How do I know God cared for Esau? He watched over him. He watched over him. Now Esau didn't care for God. That's on Esau. But the Bible says the rain falls on the evil and the... So the idea is the, that, that God, according to, to John 3.16, for, for God so loved what? Say that one more time. God so loved what? Okay, so there's love everywhere, but is there some that have preeminence? Were there some specific? Absolutely. What's one of the ones that were specific? Jacob. What's another one? How about this? Paul. Wasn't Paul going headlong in the other direction? Who intervened? Oh, crazy how that is. Now, we spend a little bit more time on this. I can show... That God has intervened in all your lives. That God has intervened in, in each and every one of us. So we see this attitude. Here's what I want you to get. Love, hate. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Jacob I've chosen. Esau I didn't choose. I chose Jacob. For what? The nation. You want to read this quote? It's out of Malachi. And Jacob is, is representative of the nation of Israel. And Esau is representative of the nation of Edom. And God says, I chose Israel. I chose Jacob. He has the preeminence. It deals with the fact that our allegiance, where is our allegiance? It deals with priority. <clears throat> we already saw that with Rachel and Leah. It deals with this idea of priority. Here's what Colossians 1.18 says. And he, Jesus Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So in all relationships, 
on earth or in heaven, what is the most important relationship according to the Word of God? Who is to be preeminent? Jesus. So Jesus said, every other relationship needs to look less than this relationship that you have with me. Every other relationship, when compared, ought to look like you ought to be able to see the change in priority, the change in allegiance. Now that's hard. We can acknowledge that, right? The practical reality is that's not easy. I look at my little grandkids and it's hard for them not to have preeminence. No? We look at the, the ones that we care for, the ones that we love, and it's hard for us to say they, they, they don't have preeminence. But let me tell you this. Unless Jesus Christ has a preeminence in your life, then whatever you're doing for your grandkids or your children is going to wreck them, not make them. You make them when your priorities are right. Because now, you're the man or woman you need to be in their life. Now you have the ability to really make a big difference in their direction, in the things that they're choosing, and what they're doing. So not only do we see a change of of allegiance, look at verse 27, we see our plans are going to change. Look how our plans change. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Well, that's different than the plans I had today. The plans I have today are different than that. And if we're honest, most of the days our plans are different than that. But the Bible says if we want to be his disciple, our plans need to change. How do our plans change? Well, I need to die to my plans and I need to live to Christ. I died to my plans. I got lots of plans and ideas and concepts and things I want to do. But the Lord says, if if I'm the priority in your life now, let me be the priority in your plans. How does he illustrate that? He says, pick up your cross. How often? Daily. We'll read it in a sec. Pick up your cross daily and do what? Follow me. That's a change in plans. We want to see that our plans are crucified with Christ. Luke 9.23 He said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So my allegiances change and my plans change. That's a disciple. That's a disciple. Well, how do I do anything? Well, here's where I told you we start asking why questions and making things more complicated than it is. Yeah, we get all kind of complicated. Let's uncomplicate it. Okay, Jesus Christ needs to be my priority. He needs to be my priority. That's why He should be the first place I run in the morning. He should be the last one I talk to at night. If He's the first person I run to in the morning and the last person I run to at night, then Jesus Christ is my priority. And as my priority, I can show up and ask Him, Lord, what do you have for me today? Instead of, you know what, God, I made a bunch of plans today. Here's my plans. Which tends to be what I do more of. Which is why I still don't have an elk. Because <laughs> I have all my plans. And I think it's become obvious that God's plan is I don't get one. But am I okay with that? Yeah. It's no big deal. Honest? Be cool? Sure. But is it necessary? No. Because I want the plans to be about Him. I'll, I'll be honest. Here's, somebody taught me about this, about this idea. Just in, practically, okay? Just, just pra- what's, what's that look like? My plans aren't His plans. How's it look? Um, I've been out not very many times, but a few times fishing with, with Don MacArthur. And one of the blessings about going fishing with him 
hunting with him, going out with him, is that he's, he always prays, he always makes the day about the Lord, and he asks God to, to bless and make the day about him. It's your day, God. I think that's awesome. I think it's awesome to say, I love to be out in the woods, but before I go out into the woods, I'm going to show up and say, Lord, what do you got today? I want this day to honor you. You have no idea what that day is going to look like when it starts, do you? How many people are you going to run into? What, what that's going to be like? Who knows? But I can make Jesus the priority, and I can make my plans crucified and His in charge. Not difficult. It's not crazy. It just means I have to think about it. But isn't that what a relationship is about? Ladies, don't you want your husband to think about you? Like, oh, the reason you didn't know what to do is because you didn't even think about me. You got that bowl of ice cream for yourself. You sat down ate it, and then I just sat there looking at you. And you said, oh, I didn't know you wanted a bowl of ice cream. Yeah, you didn't know because you didn't think of me. Oh, you guys have had this conversation too. So let's, let's sanctify this conversation and now make it about God. Now make it about God. You need to think about Him. He needs to be on your mind. He needs to be in your heart. He needs to be on your prayers. He needs to be the face that we seek. Because that's how we accomplish discipleship. The next thing we see about discipleship is it requires evaluation. It requires evaluation. Look at verse 28. He's, Jesus always, when He gives a concept, He then lays out a story about the concept, right? So here's the concept, change of allegiance, change of your plans. Now let me give you a story. <clears throat> For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, but was not able to finish. Let me ask you something. Now, now. It's about evaluation. It's about discipleship is about evaluation, but there's a, a different concept about the evaluation. Look, just so we can simplify it, none of you had what you needed to finish a tower. Who has what you need? Jesus. He tells you, this is how you're going to finish. Put your eyes on the prize. Any of you ever had to do something you didn't want to do? For four years in the Marine Corps, I ran every morning, every lunchtime, every nighttime. When I finished the Marine Corps, I swore that if a grizzly chased me, I'm going to lay down and let him eat me. <laughs> I never want to run again. I hate running. There, I don't even know how to, to say it harsh enough how much I detest running. Okay. But when I was in the Marine Corps, you cannot finish anything you start with that attitude. So I lift my eyes, look where I'm going, and I put one foot in front of the other, and I say, I'm going to finish. I'm going to finish. Paul said, not that we have already attained or am already perfected, but this one thing I do. I forget the things which lie behind me. I lift up my eyes and I put them on the prize. And I run the race laid out before me. The concept that Jesus is teaching is, when you come to do something, if you're going to do something, you want to finish what you're doing. If you don't finish what you're doing, then you become a mockery. For a Christian, you lose your testimony. How many people we know that started, you know, it's great to start your walk with Christ. Praise the Lord. But how many of us know it's important to finish it? Starting it, the Bible has a story of a guy who started and didn't finish. His name's Demas. Demas, three times mentioned in the Bible. One time Paul says, man, praise God, Demas says his thanks, he's with us. Next time, pray for Demas, uh, something's up. Third time, Demas has forsaken us. Having loved this present world more. So you have this picture. And we don't know anything about Demas at all. What we know is he started and he didn't finish. Jesus is laying out this idea. Hey guys, when you start 
to build the tower. When you start to do a work, make sure you're going to finish it. Make sure you're going to finish it. Don't just look to the starting and sit back and think that there's no, no other part of that. How many marriages end up in divorce because a couple gets married and they think the wedding was the end? I did it! I got married! <coughs> Hallelujah! And so the guy goes to work and he never gets a card, never buys flowers, never go on a date, never have dinner together. Pretty soon his wife is like, I don't like this, I'm out of here. And he's like, what happened? I'll tell you, you started something, but you didn't finish it. You started a relationship, but you didn't finish your relationship. We finish a relationship when we take time. We make that relationship a priority. Crazy how that is. How do I finish the tower? Is it all about how many blocks I got and how much concrete I got and how many workers I got and how much money? No, it's, it's all about are you going to finish it or are you just going to start it? Some people enter into a relationship with Christ that way. I started it. Well, praise the Lord. How about this? Why don't you start it to finish it? That looks different, doesn't it? Doesn't that look different? It looks different for me. If I just start a race... Let me show you what it looks like. <laughs> if I didn't have to finish any of them, I'd be a lot happier about running. <laughs> I'll be in every marathon. Oh, yeah, I run marathons. You do? Yeah, I run them all the time. I'm a marathoner. I get out there and I get on that starting line and the guy shoots off the gun and I take at least three, four good hard steps. And then I go get a donut. <laughs> now, if you are a runner, you would say, you ain't never run a marathon in your life. You're right. How many of us, that sums up our relationship with Christ? That's not a relationship. That's not a disciple. That's what Jesus is saying. Think about this. Look at, line up the, the whole point of a parable is to lay it next to something real and say, okay, what's that look like? Does that look like me? Well, repent. Repent. Get your life right. Look at the second one. First one, the question for the disciple evaluating his life, can you finish it? The second one, can you face it? Look at it. Can you face it? Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20? And if not, while the other is a great way off, he'll send a delegation for terms of peace. Second question, will you face it? What has Jesus been saying all along? Look, this walk, this, this discipleship, this attitude about... Of following Christ, having a relationship with Him is not easy. Hard things happen. You look at all the battles of God's people, where God was with them, and you're going to discover something. They were always outnumbered. Always. Having twice as many against you is actually the best odds most places in the Bible. Most of them is like 400, I can't remember the number, 432 to 1 or something. Crazy. The idea here is, if you're going out and you're saying, oh, I'm going to finish this race, but then you get a look at the enemy, and the enemy's tough, and it's going to be hard, and he's got a bigger army than, than maybe you got, and, and he's got more abilities than you got, the question is, are you going to go anyway? Will you go fight anyway? Or are you going to compromise? Let's make peace. Let's make peace. I, I, I want peace. I'll make peace with the enemy. I don't want no peace with the enemy. That's another thing the Marine Corps did. Peace with the enemy is bad. The Marine Corps, here's a nice way to say Since I was or, or am a Marine, I can say it. The Marine Corps is arrogant. 
You guys ever known that? Okay. Marine Corps says, we have never retreated. <coughs> That's just not true. <coughs> but this is how they get around it. We did not retreat. We had a fighting withdrawal. <laughs> but you know what? For these, for this example, I like it. Because it means, yes, I'm going to fight. I'm going to be engaged with the enemy. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to take a day off. What happened to David when he took a day off from war? It says, and when the time came for the kings to go out to war, David hung out, went for a walk on his balcony, saw a woman sunbathing naked on her roof. Remember her name? Bathsheba. Things kind of went downhill from there. What's the lesson? Yeah, you don't take a day off from battle. If you're the king, if you're in the battle, you're in the battle. You're not looking for peace with the enemy. But the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. My enemy is not the guys on CNN. My enemy is not part of the Democratic National Convention. Or part of the Republican National Convention. Or any of the other ones you want to pick on. My enemy is not flesh and blood. That's what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age. He's describing the fact that the battle we fight is a spiritual battle. And if you look at the enemy and the spiritual forces, you might be like Elisha. You might look out and you might say, wow... It's a big army, actually. It was, it was his servant. He goes outside and he says, Man, there's a big army out there. <coughs> what are we going to do? And he says, Man, open your eyes. There are more who are for us than there are against us. And the Lord opens up his eyes. He goes out there and sees the army of the Lord. And he goes, Oh, okay. It'll be okay. That's the attitude that Jesus is looking for from a disciple. Don't be like a king looking to make peace because they're bigger, they're stronger, they're louder, they're more obnoxious. They offend me. They, 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 I can't stand the way they look. They, they pierce their face. I don't know. Whatever things might get you to think, I, I don't know if I can deal with this. Instead say, no. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in so I already have everything I need. It's a pastor in uh, Iran named uh, Yosef, Yusuf, Y-O-U-C-E-F. Maybe you guys have seen prayer requests about him. He was released not that long ago. He's been rearrested. His children were beaten when he was taken. Um, because he, as a servant of the king, said... I'm, as long as I'm here, I'm going to keep doing what God's called me to do. But it's illegal to preach. It's illegal to teach. It's illegal to stand up and say you're a follower of Christ. But he does it anyway. And it costs him. But I'll tell you this. That family, those kids, his wife, are going to be just fine. They're going to be fine because of the example laid out before them. One day they're going to pass from this world and be running into the open arms of Jesus. And they're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And there's nothing you could offer to trade them on that day for that. Nothing. That's it. That's, that is the having the attitude. Can I face it? Yeah, I can face it. They're bigger. So what? Jesus is stronger. He'll give me what I need. Does that mean I will always have victory in every, every fight? No. I, I'll just always be used the way God wants to use me. And sometimes we learn more in defeat than we do in victory. That's okay. Because who has the preeminence? Jesus does. Not me. So it doesn't go on my record. My record is about Him. Lifting up his name. Can you face or will you compromise? Then listen to the demand. The last thing Jesus, or second to last thing he's going to lay out for. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. 
Nothing can be between us and the Lord. Nothing. Any of you who will not renounce everything that he has, everything that you have laid aside for the excellency of Christ, renouncing all other allegiances and having loyalty or faithfulness in Jesus Christ. That's what we want. That's where we want our focus to be. Last thing we want to see about discipleship this morning is this idea. Look at verse 34. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Here's again another little parable he's laying beside it. Salt is good. Jesus is calling us as believers to be salt and light. We want to be salt. That means we make other people thirsty. We're a preservative for the, for the nations. We want to act in that role as we fulfill what God's given us to do. So salt is good. But how does salt lose its saltiness? I don't know when it isn't salt anymore. You get the idea? What good is something that calls itself salt that's not salt? What's the last time you went and grabbed a big handful of salt and you threw a bunch of it in your mouth and you said, that's salt. (laughs) Throw some more in your mouth. Mm, That's salt. Um, I don't know. Give me some more. Um, um, No, salt touches your face. You know it's salt, huh? How about this? If a disciple is in your presence, you should know he's a disciple. Just like you know salt. If there's something's not salty, then let me let me make it easy for you. It's not salt. Salt? It's salty. If it's not, it is of no use for soil or the manure pile it's thrown away. It has no use. What use is there in someone who says he is a disciple if he's not? Is there any use? Jesus just said the chapter before, many are going to come and knock on the door and say, Lord, let us in. We ate with you. We hung out with you. We heard your teachings. And the Lord said, depart from me. I never knew you. So he lays out this idea, the cost of discipleship. What does a disciple of Christ look like? What is it that a disciple of Christ is proclaiming? He's proclaiming that his life has changed. There's new allegiance. I have an allegiance to the Lord God Almighty. I have an attitude toward Him. I want to focus and honor Him. My plans are crucified. My allegiance has changed. And I make a careful evaluation. What's that? That I'm going to finish what I start. And I'm not afraid to enter into the battle, even if I don't have as big an army as the enemy does. The Bible wants us to understand this ideal. Please hear God wants you to be real. Don't proclaim yourself salt and then not be salty. Don't proclaim yourself light and then be darkness. Be who you are in Christ. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time, for this opportunity. As we look to you, Lord Jesus, we pray, God, that you meet us in this place. God, I pray that you would allow your word to have its rightful place in our lives. God, that your word is what chisels out the hardness in my heart. That your word is what is conforming me into the image of your son. I want to be transformed. I want my allegiances transformed so that you are my priority. I want my plans transformed so that my plans are about you. I want my attitudes transformed so that I finish what I start. I want my attitudes transformed so that I'm prepared for the battle laid out before me. Even though the enemy may be larger. I'm not looking for peace with the enemy. I'm looking to stand with you. Think about this reality. Jesus is standing and talking to a bunch of men as he's headed to the cross. As he's headed for the night in which he'll be arrested. As he's headed for the beatings that he's going to endure. As he's headed toward the suffering that lays out before him. And as he's headed 
to the victory of the resurrection. All of that is in front of us as well. Times of tribulation, times of suffering, times of difficulty. But if we'll change our attitude and be who we're supposed to be, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. So that means I, His word's more important than yours. The things He calls me to sets precedent in my life. <clears throat> God, I pray that that can be our hearts. Not to look at this and say, well, this doesn't have any bearing on me, but rather to look at it and say, God, I want to be a disciple like this. This is who I want to be. I want people, when they look at me, to say, salt. I want people, when they look at me, to say, light. I don't want them to look at me and wonder. I want my colors to be clear. So God, help us. Call us to repentance. Call us to attitudes that are going to equip us to be the men and women you're calling us to. Be glorified in your church as we are called to go forward and do battle with an enemy that we can't see, but is behind the attitudes in our world today. God, help us to have the attitude you want us to have, to be your hands and feet, your voice, that we sound like you, that we look like you. What, what better compliment could someone pay than to look at you and say oh they've been with Jesus the master I am and I will become like him God call us to be the men and women you want us to be Empower us to do that as we surrender our wills, our plans, our priorities. And I pray, Lord, you would drive us into yours. That your name would be glorified and magnified in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.